Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And almost instantaneously, my perception of her and her attractiveness like changed. All of a sudden, the things that I had just thought about and thought, ah, I can't really, eh, I don't know if I want to ask her out because like, what will other people think, you know, all of a sudden that changed in a heartbeat. I remember going to my mom and talking to my mom about this situation. And she was just very good about helping me to not give such a shit about what other people thought about me and just like made me feel okay with not being okay. I mean, this is applies to all of life. So the only advice I can really give is you know, what I think my parents did for me. And that's really give me the space and the time to figure things out and to not make me feel the pressure to have to have it figured out sooner than I was ready to. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Luke, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, Srini. Really good to be with you, man. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of your publicist. And right when I saw the title of your book, Wanting, I just was immediately intrigued by it because it felt like your book was the answer to so many questions I've had that I've never been able to get answers to by talking to people on this show. Uh, but before we get into all that, I want to start by asking what I think is a very fitting question given the subject matter of your book, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made through your life and where you've ended up? <laughs> oh, man, that's a great question. I, I mean, I don't know if I knew then and I still don't know if I know now. I was I had a really weird high school experience. I got kicked out of one high school at the end of my sophomore year for just getting in a fight, like defending somebody else. And... um you know, broke my femur my freshman year. So I was on crutches for most of that year. So I went from being a star quarterback to being this depressed dude who hobbled around and needed people to carry his books for him the whole year. Really rough start to my high school, uh, which made my identity formation all the more difficult. <laughs> like, am I a jock? Am I a nerd? I'm kind of smart, but I don't know how much I should show it or how much effort I should put in. 
um, kind of like theater. Like, <laughs> so I, I had, I had a real identity crisis. Um, and I like, as pretty much, I think everybody does when they're in high school. Uh, yeah. so it's super hard for me to like put my finger on it. But if I was to try to describe like who I was, I was just a, a, a guy who was thinking too critically about the environment that he was in. Like from like, I, I kind of extracted myself. Like I refused to go to prom and homecoming. I was like, I don't, I'm not going to do this stuff. Like, uh, so I was kind of a loner to be honest with you. Um, I was mm. all I could think about. I, I was, went to high school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All I could think about was college and I need to just get through this and get to college. And I, w I know I want to go to college in New York city. That's about the only thing that I know. And, um, and I just kind of like counted down the days. I know that's kind of a depressing mm. way to start the podcast. I think it's a, an incredibly insightful way to start the podcast. Cause like my first thought was, isn't all of adolescence just one gigantic identity crisis? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it certainly felt that way for me. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you're alone uh, because I, I felt that way. I mean, to me, high school was just basically a barrier between, you know, living with my parents and getting the hell out of there to go to college. It was just a pit stop, especially because I moved so many times. Uh, but one thing I wonder, I mean, based on, on the background that you have and you know, your research that you've done, why is it that adolescence is such a gigantic identity crisis for so many people? And why do you get that sort of um, hierarchy that exists of popular kids and, you know, not so popular kids uh, when you when you look at this just based on, on your experience? Because, like I said, I, I think that that was one of the things I just kept seeing examples of what you've done um, in this book. Just I could trace them back all the way to eighth grade. Mm. So, you know, one important thing to know about me is I'm an only child, which you know, probably affected the way that I approached high school. I didn't have any older siblings who had modeled, you know, what it means to be cool for me. I just kind of had to figure everything out on my own. So I think that affected my perception and the way that I navigated it and dealt with everything. My read on it now on what was happening for me and what I think happens for most people is that we have models in our life from the moment that we're born. You know, the first one usually being our mother. You know, we look into our mother's eyes and of course our father. Uh, our, so our parents are models for us in, in many different ways, right? They're models of speaking, you know, like we learn language from them. Uh, they're models of lifestyle and they're models of desire. So what our parents want, what they think is valuable, we assimilate that into our own understanding of what's wantable and what's not. You know, political stuff, career stuff. You know, if your parents are both doctors and they feel very strongly that you should be a doctor, that's going to do one of two things. It could really make you obsessively focused on that um, for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, or it could make you totally rebel. I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. So we have these models, uh, a few models in our life. We have older siblings. They're models for us as well. I didn't. And what adolescence is, is we get to this stage where we're just kind of like let loose. Like we, we've, we've stopped believing our parents are gods and, you know, we, we've stopped like looking to them as our, as our models of like what we want to be. We're trying to differentiate, individuate at that point. 
And all of a sudden, especially in junior high and high school, we're just thrust into this environment with a bunch of other kids that are our age, at least in our class. And we have more in common with them than, than we don't in, in a certain sense. I mean, what do I mean by that? I just mean you're 14 years old. Everybody else is roughly 14 years old in your class as a freshman. You, I mean, you don't have any money, you know, like you're all kind, I mean, even though you might come from families of different degrees of wealth, you still have to ask for money if you want it, right? Um, unless you have a job. Uh, and you're all kind of in this same boat, you know, you're all like thrust into this situation where you all have to figure everything out. Everybody's insecure, like, you know, but nobody thinks that anybody else is except them usually. And nobody's really talking about it. Everybody's kind of forming their sense of identity against everybody else. And this is why the different little groups form, um, you know, the classic, you know, archetypal high school categories, they, they form and people kind of migrate into those very quickly um, because they, they find, you know, kindred spirits. And that is, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I've, you know, this is who I am. But usually, um, I find that when people are honest and they've sort of taken a journey where they're, they're able to continue to step out as they, they get older in life, that was just a temporary kind of phase that they had to pass through. I mean, it's kind of tragic. Like when I, you know, I'm 39 years old and I, I do have a couple of friends that are like still the same person like today that they were in high school and they're like trying to be that person. Like, all right, like you're a jock, right? We get it, you know, like, it's like, and, and, you know, I, I wonder like, cause like the part of the, the journey of maturation for me was finding like different models as I, as I grew up and, and leaving sort of old ones behind and constantly kind of stepping out into new territory, uh, which is super uncomfortable to do. But high school is that period, adolescence in general is that period where you're kind of overwhelmed with models. You're overwhelmed with people that are modeling different lifestyles and different ways of being in relationships, different ideas, different career paths. Think about it. In high school, everybody's talking about where they want to go to college and where you shouldn't go to college and what cities are cool to move to and what kind of careers they want to have. And you don't know whether they like trust them or not. You're like, you know, are they just as clueless as I am or do they know something that I don't know? So I would call it a, a crisis of knowing who to trust is to me is like the crisis of adolescence. Uh, but it's something that not a lot of people talk about. So one thing you said uh, was that everybody uh, is insecure and everybody thinks that everybody else is not insecure. And I distinctly remember that feeling thinking, oh, does the hottest girl in school know she's the hottest girl in school? Does the guy who's dating her think he's the coolest guy in school because he's dating the hottest girl in school? And it's only, you know, I think when you reflect on it as an adult that you kind of look back and you start to see, wow, everybody is way too self-absorbed to actually give a damn about, you know, what you think about them because they're so worried uh, about what everybody else thinks about them. But, you know, Having had that experience, what would you say to parents who are listening to this who might have children who feel insecure about their sort of status in adolescence? Hmm. 
Well, I'm not a parent yet. So I, I, you know, I'm like sort of highly uncomfortable to say anything about that. You know, I'm still (laughs) trying to figure that out. And like, luckily I have, uh, I just got married a few weeks ago. So, uh, I, I may have about 10 years to figure this one out, man. Um, (laughs) so, uh, you know, I think, let me just tell you a quick story from my high school. Um, uh, my parents were great. Uh, love my parents and just so supportive of me, like giving me room to roam and run and explore new things. And we're never critical of me. Just like, okay, go try that, you know? And if you fall on your face or if you don't like it, then you learned a lesson and you moved on. They never really tried to steer me really strongly in one direction or another. Like my dad was never adamant that I played a certain sport or a certain position in that sport. They never like were insistent that I go to like a certain college, like their alma mater. They were great about let, giving me like a sense of freedom to figure things out on my own. Um, and I, you know, I, like I said, I, I did have that identity crisis and it manifested itself in all these weird ways where like, uh, just to give you an example, I think this is a common example, actually. I was, uh, I met this particular girl who was in my class who I wasn't physically attracted to and, but she was smart and kind of weird and like into this stuff. And I didn't really give her a second thought, right? Then one of my friends, a guy that I really admired, who like all of the girls were crazy about, just took an interest in her all of a sudden and thought that she was the most fascinating girl in the whole class. And almost instantaneously, my perception of her and her attractiveness like changed. All of a sudden, the things that I had just thought about and thought, ah, I can't really, eh, I don't know if I want to ask her out because like, what will other people think, you know, all of a sudden that changed in a heartbeat. I remember going to my mom and talking to my mom about this situation. And she was just very good about helping me to not give such a shit about what other people thought about me and to you know, just like made me feel okay with not being okay, if that makes sense. I mean, this is applies to all of life. Like sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Like we all just need to be doing great all of the time. And she was very good about not like making me feel even more insecure than I already was. So the only advice I can really give is, you know, what I think my parents did for me. And that's really give me the space and the time to figure things out and to not make me feel the pressure to have to have it figured out sooner than I was ready to. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I, the thing that's interesting to me, particularly the way that we socialize and educate people in the United States and, you know, especially in my culture is that we definitely are taught to have something figured out before we're ready to. You know, people are making plans for their life in high school and I remember going back to my high school AP English teacher's class and all these people were so worried about what they were going to do with their life after high school. And what I realized was that no matter how many plans I made, life definitely didn't go according to plan. Mm. Well, yeah. And I, I deal with this on a daily basis because one of the hats that I wear is I, I teach uh, college undergrads in business and they come their freshman year of undergrad and feel an extraordinary amount of pressure. Like, you know, Professor Burgess, what internship am I going to have this summer? And they're freshmen. I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I was like, I was a server at Pizzeria Uno, like <laughs> in South Street Seaport, you know, after my freshman year of college. It's like one of the best decisions I ever made, you know, like I learned service. I learned how to like put up with like people that are pretty mean to me sometimes, right? I don't tip. Uh, and it took me a really long time. Um, and, and they just feel like such pressure. And sometimes I feel like the greatest gift that I can give them is kind of the one that my parents gave me. It's like, you know, there's no, there's no ticking clock on your life right now. But like, just because all of your classmates know what they're going to do this summer doesn't mean that you have to. It might just mean that 
they're, you know, making bad choices um, too soon because they feel pressure to do so. Or they're just like, you know, sort of following some mimetic path because they think that if they, you know, it's like a video game where like you have to get this thing at this level, you can't move on to the next one. My life has not been that linear. I don't know about you, but it, it just hasn't quite, <laughs> it, it just hasn't quite worked like that, right? Like I can go like three years. It's like being a writer. You like not write anything for like a long time, for months and months. And then everything comes to you in one day. You've been banging your head mm-hmm. against the wall. And my life in general has kind of been like that. Yeah, mine too. Uh, no, mine hasn't been anything but linear. Well, as somebody who spends um, part of your time in a college classroom, and this is something I ask educators uh, every time I get to talk to one, if you were tasked with uh, redesigning our education system uh, for the future, what would you change about it? What do you think works? What do you think doesn't? Hmm. I think that there should be a huge emphasis on mentorship from an early age. Mark Andreessen has written about this and it's time to build. Um, I think there should be a real emphasis on um, mentorship from like almost like an apprenticeship model so people can experiment doing different things um, rather than than simply reading textbooks and, and, and taking quizzes, right? So I th- I'm a huge fan of Montessori education. I talk about that in the book. Either mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though I didn't, uh, I didn't have it when I was a child. Um, the more that I've learned about it, the more it kind of is in line with what I've learned in my research about mimesis and mimetic desire. Uh, you know, the, the teacher introduces a student um, to to some topic and then really gives them room to roam. But I don't think that there's any substitute for having personal mentorship. And one of the things I worry about as we try to scale new models of education and more of it is technology driven, more of it's moved online. Of course, the pandemic, the pandemic has accelerated that. That's kind of a different story. I am kind of old school and I, and I just think there's no substitute for a personal encounter. There's no substitute for, you know, um, you know, Robin Williams, right. And dead poet society, like looking you in the eye and, and, you know, believing in you and, and, and caring about you. Like people don't, care about what you have to say until they know that that you care about them and you know it's going to be very difficult to recreate that uh the way that we're moving if it if everything just becomes technical so I, I i love the humanities and the liberal arts i think they're important but i think the most important thing is that humanity and that personal encounter because there's just there's just no way to recreate that i mean we're, we're humans we need the contact and I, i'm almost kind of like a small as beautiful guy here like I, I, I would, I, I understand as an entrepreneur and a startup guy, the importance of being able to scale things, but there's a real tension there with the way that I, I think we learn best, the way that we learn to be in relationship with other people. And, you know, my wife and I have talked about this with our kids. I, I think we're going to want to have them in kind of a, a, a smaller environment where they can be nurtured and, um, where they can just be exposed to a lot of different kinds of people with, with, with different ideas and, and get some hands-on work. And also the physicality I think is important too. I think that yeah. education also happens in and through the body. And then I think that's really, really important. I mean, I realize that we're in a knowledge economy and that, you know, STEM is very prominent right now, but there's really something to be said about, you know, kind of a, a healthy mind and a healthy body. And we, we learn many things through doing 
I, I think I'm a particular doing kind of learner. Um, and it, there's like a tacit knowledge that comes with that that is impossible to describe. It's like if you ask me, you know, Luke, how do you ride a bike? And I tried to describe to you how to ride a bike. If you followed my instructions, I mean, first of all, I probably wouldn't even be able to articulate in any kind of coherent way how to ride a bike. And if you if you followed my instructions, you you would never be able to ride a bike. Um, you'd be better off just kind of like learning it by doing it because that's like an example of something that we have tacit now tacit knowledge about through this mm-hmm. that that sort of physical action. Yeah. Well, I mean, it reminds me of learning how to surf because. I can't teach somebody how to learn how to surf anymore because I did it for so long that even if I deconstruct the the you know process step by step, it's so unconscious to me at this point that it's useless when somebody gets in the water. And it's funny because that's literally what a surf lesson is like. The instructor basically teaches you how to stand up on sand and then moving water is a very different beast than sand. So the land lesson they teach you on how to pop up becomes completely useless the minute you get in the water. And one of my friends said, how do you actually figure out the timing? And I told him, I said, just come to the beach every day. Mm. I've had the same experience. I I tried to learn how to surf. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I just, I just (laughs) had to just, I was out there all day and, you know, I ended up being able to stand up and ride a wave in for, you know, 10 seconds and I was stoked. And I yeah. thought I was going to be a lot better than I was because I know how to snowboard. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've had a very similar experience with snowboarding. It's like, you yeah. can only tell somebody so much. I mean, when I tried to teach my wife, my, then my girlfriend, how to snowboard, I mean, it's a, it's a shocking that we're even still together after that day. Like, <laughs> I mean, like really, I was so bad. And she was like, Luke, why didn't you just tell, tell it to me this way? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't remember. Like, I'm doing my yeah. you know? You're just going to have well, to fall on your butt like 25 times. Sorry. I, I'm an avid snowboarder as well. And it's funny because I made the transition from surfing to snowboarding. That was easier because when I tried like 15 years prior, I couldn't snowboard to save my life. And so now my rule is, look, if you're coming snowboarding with me, I'm going to get you to hire an instructor because I can't teach you. I know that you'll, and it's funny, I've heard the breakup story from a day on the mountain from numerous people before. <laughs> no, I, I'm the same way. I will never try it again, right? I, I, yeah. I think I have the humility to be like, no, an instructor, they actually do this for a living. I, yeah. yeah. So you brought up the physicality of, of education, and this is something that really struck me because my old mentor, Greg Hartle, uh, he did this project called $10 on a Laptop, where he uh, traveled around the country, you know, wanted to visit all 50 states, work one-on-one with 500 people, and then start a business in an industry he knew nothing about. And you know, he ended up doing all of that. And the caveat to the whole project was that he could only use the $10 in a laptop to accomplish all those goals. And that $10 ended up being worth like $10 million in equity and cash. But one of the things that he, that he said that really struck me, he said his biggest regret about that project was how much time he actually spent on the internet. He said that he would have been far better off if he had done nothing related to a blog, did the project, kept a very minimal online presence. And he said, look at the difference between when I talk to you on the phone and when I come and meet you in person. Look what we did in two weeks versus, you know, six months of talking on the phone. Um, so, you know, as somebody who, you know, mentioned that, like, why is it that that in-person um, learning leads to such a, a sort of exponential curve and, you know, rapid uptake that you don't necessarily get through, uh, you know, a virtual mentorship? you know, we're incarnate creatures, you know, I mean, we have bodies and eyes and ears, um, you know, for a reason. And, and we pick up on so many signals, you know, from body language to tone of voice, 
um, that we, we lose some of them even in Zoom. You know, like we, we think that it's replicating a real situation, but it's not at all. I mean, it's weird, you know, like what other situation are you like looking at yourself while you talk? It's not normal. Um, and I've just seen it like, you know, we had to move mostly online for the last 12 months and the learning is slower. I don't know if all in-person education is necessarily, you know, moves that much faster because I mean, there's bad in-person education and learning, but when it's done well, I think that a, a, a good teacher knows how to communicate in a myriad of like subtle ways with cues, just like a good sports, co- uh, sports coach does, you know, like a really good coach is able to, um, let's just say basketball coach is able to basically, uh, give subtle sort of cues and, and use language that gets you to do certain things that he would never be able to do in, uh, like a, like a written context or a phone context because it's there, right? It's like the look of the eyes, right? Like never make that pass again or whatever. Like the, the amount of things that are communicated in an instant are impossible to replicate in other formats. And, you know, it's, it's hard to fully explain. I just think this is the way that social life is in, is in general, you know, like we're picking up so much more. The, the learning is happening without us knowing that 99% of it is even happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, what has been the trajectory of your career that ultimately led to writing this book and focusing on this topic? I graduated from undergrad business school, worked on Wall Street for a very short period of time in New York and Hong Kong. I was just, I was an investment banker and w- was miserable and kind of had this realization that if I don't get out now, um, you know, I may never get out. Uh, I'm like too competitive and too ambitious and everybody says they are and then nobody does. And, and I, I didn't want to go the traditional route of going to business school. Uh, so I, I had an opportunity to start a company with my cousin in California, moved straight from Hong Kong to Hollywood and started a company out of a little uh, two bedroom apartment right under the 101 in LA and ended up, uh, you know, grew that company, uh, exited that company and spent the rest of my twenties starting a few more companies. So startup world, I was never in Silicon Valley. I was in Southern California and, uh, and eventually I moved to Vegas, uh, where I met Tony Shea and, and I opened the book with a story about one of those other three companies, Fit Fuel, and, the you know potential merger that I was working on with Zappos, and I had, I had this kind of idea of like how my life as an entrepreneur would go, and it never went according to plan. You know, it, I'd, I'd accomplished something that I wanted to accomplish, and uh, feel extremely unsatisfied, and I, it really felt Sisyphean to me. You know, like this is just a never-ending loop that I seem to be caught in, and I don't really want to go the rest of my life feeling like that. You know, we're like, nothing is ever enough. Like, what am I, what am I out to do here? What am I trying to prove to myself or to other people? Like, I got to figure this out. And I had, was fortunate to have some, uh, 2008, I had a business deal blow up on me. Uh, I had a relationship and, um, romantic relationship and a lot of things that forced me to just 
settle down and ask myself some hard questions. Uh, I don't know if I would have been able to do it myself. You know, like sometimes it, it's almost like take something outside of you to kind of force you into to, to do the things that you need to do, uh, whatever that is. You know, sometimes, unfortunately, it's like a tragedy, uh, you know, a health scare, whatever. You know, for me, it was just having my sense of identity really, really shaken up by by some events. Like I didn't think that I could uh, I didn't think that I could do anything wrong at a certain period of time, right? Like just revenue increases month over month and that's the way it goes. I got myself into too much debt and ended up taking a, a little sabbatical from everything. And it started out as a few weeks and it turned into a few months. And then it turned into, you know, over a year where I stepped away from a company that I was absolutely miserable running. And I was like, I guess, Luke, you could fight and scrap and, you know, you could save this company, but is that really the way that you want to spend the next year? Why don't you just cut your losses and, and take some time? I didn't, I, I, I was lucky that I didn't have to work, um, during that period. So I, I, I had enough to, to be able to, to travel and to read and to just explore some things. Um, and that's what I did. And I, you know, I, I, I wish I had done it 10 years earlier. You know, I just never, there's things that they don't teach you in school. Like they don't teach you how to discern, you know, which of your desires is illusory and sort of driven by your ego and which of them are a little more genuine and, and are going to lead to fulfillment. Um, what's, you know, who, who are you, right? Like what, what project are you going to work on? What creative thing are you going to make? That's a reflection of kind of who you are and what's important to you versus what the market wants. And often there's a real disconnect there between what the market wants and, and what you want to do. I mean, this is classic artist dilemma, right? And mm -hmm. I had this artist dilemma as an entrepreneur. Like, if I can do a lean startup and just build what the market wants me to build, because that might make me miserable, even if I'm successful. I could be absolutely miserable. So over the course of those of those few years, I uh, I, I sort of came back to myself. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm using language a little deliberately because it was kind of, you know, the, the words that opened the, you know, the inferno, the divine comedy, right? Um, it's kind of lost in the dark woods and, and sort of, you know, had, had went out of himself and didn't know where he was or, or who he was. And, and I had that moment for sure. Uh, so I, I, I ended up uh, still starting a couple of companies in my early 30s, but I went back to school too studied philosophy, studied theology. Um, I lived in Italy for a couple of years and I felt like I was able to sort of integrate a, a bunch of like different aspects of myself that I hadn't been able to integrate when I was in my, in my twenties. Um, sort of a intellectually curious side, a contemplative side, a spiritual side. And I was able to sort of then come back to a place when I was in my mid thirties and kind of put everything together and formulate a new vision of how I wanted to be an entrepreneur, kinds of things that I wanted to work on, the creative outlets that I needed. Writing a book was one of them. Uh, like if I don't have that form of expression, I'm, I'm just not happy. So that's how I kind of got to this place where, you know, I took a very non-traditional route, uh, discovered some things pretty, pretty late in life. And, you know, that's just the time that I needed. And, you know, I, I never would have written this book had I not had that time away. 
my book would have just been kind of purely uh, kind of like a, a you know, your, your typical kind of like hustle porn book if I hadn't mm-hmm. taken that time away. Uh, and instead, I, I realized that I wanted to to show that it's okay um, to to have uh, your values shaken up and to have different values as an entrepreneur, which mm-hmm. you then find a way to, you know, to manifest in your life and, and in the world. And that's that's been my journey so far. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. 
So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into talking about the book. So one of the things you say in the opening is that mimetic theory isn't like learning some impersonal law of physics, which you can study from a distance. It means learning something new about your own past that explains how your identity has been shaped and why certain people and things have exerted more influence over you than others. It means coming to grips with a force that permeates human relationships in which you are at this moment involved. You can never be a neutral observer of mimetic desire. Um, I think for the sake of our audience, can you define what you mean by mimetic desire? That phrase comes from a French thinker named René Girard, taught at Stanford for many years. He was a, a mentor to Peter Thiel and many others. And it, what it, mimetic is a fancy word for imitation. So it means that desire is fundamentally imitative and that contrary to popular belief, uh, our desires are not generated totally spontaneously, um, even though we think that they are. Our desires, especially when they're more abstract, are generated socially and where they're generated and shaped through models of desire. Like we look to other people who help us know what to want and what to pursue and that we, we never um, autonomously decide on those things. It's, it's, we're always kind of caught up in this web of desire and it's social. And just to be clear, it doesn't mean that everything that we want or desire is is like that. Uh, there, we you know we have certain needs, and uh, we have a phys- physiological basis for being attracted to certain people. If I'm super thirsty, I don't need a model of desire to show me that what I want is water uh, or food um, or warmth. If I'm cold, I don't need models for those things. And in the book, I differentiate those as you know we should call those needs. Just to be clear even though those can also be desires, right? Because now we don't just want water. Like we now have a hundred different brands of water to choose from, right? <laughs> so like yeah. even the world of needs has become the world of desires, which means that even now just wanting to drink water, we can look to models to tell us, you know, which kind of water to drink. And an easy way to think about this would be like for certain things, we have biological wiring that's like a radar and it shows us like what we need to survive. It's like just built in to who we are. Okay. Uh, for most things though, in our world today that are in the universe of desire, we don't have any real like biological signal that shows us whether we should, uh, I don't know, become a doctor or a lawyer or whether we should go live in Iowa or in Florida, you know? Those are things where we rely on models of desire. And often while we convince ourselves that we're making our choices or we're pursuing our goals or desires based on purely objective criteria, we're in fact probably being influenced by some hidden models of desire in our lives. Mm. So one thing you say is that medic desire, because it's social, spreads from person to person and through culture, it results in two different movements, two cycles of desire. The first cycle leads to tension, conflict, and volatility, breaking down relationships and causing instability and confusion as competing desires interact in volatile ways. This is the default cycle that has been most prevalent in human history. It's accelerating today. So how do you 
prevent yourself from becoming a, a victim of that, given that it's accelerating. Because and to your point, we all have models of desire. Uh, and the other thing, you know, is, is how do you figure out which models of desire are appropriate? Because I, I wrote this article on Medium about why outliers are terrible role models for most of us. Yet, who do we put on the covers of magazines? Who do we read self-help books about? Oprah, Steve Jobs, even though none of us are ever going to become those people. Yeah, and we shouldn't become those people because then we'll never become ourselves. Um, yeah. So there's an interesting paradox in that uh, we we need models to to become ourselves in a sense. Um, it just kind of happens. Uh, but we can be intentional about the kinds that we choose. And there are positive ones and there are negative ones. There are negative models. The, the key here is that most people just don't think that they have models at all. You know, I mean, after we're like mm -hmm. above the age of seven and, you know, we've stopped openly acknowledging our role models, most of us at least, we we go out into the world as adults and we assume that we've left that behind when in fact we're affected by both positive and negative models of desire all the time. And, you yeah. know, being aware of that and naming them is really important. And, you know, I, like we can then catch ourselves when we're being negatively affected by models. So, you know, Girard said that kind of the default path that mimetic desire takes if we're not aware of it is that it pulls us into rivalry with others and sort of an obsessive focus on measuring ourselves against other people because if you know if we're if we want what somebody else has wanted and we're paying attention to their their path and what they're achieving there we, we sort of can't get them out of our head you know we're constantly forming our identity over and, and against them and leads to conflict and it just leads to misery. Uh, and, you know, I see this happening in, in, in our culture. Um, a lot of times, you know, it happens in politics too, where we become obsessively focused on, you know, sort of people that we would consider our rivals or our enemies. And it ends up determining like a large part of our behavior. Like if they do X, then we have to do Y. Um, or this constant sort of needing to outdo the other and we compete for power or status or reputation or whatever it is. And recognizing that we're, we can get caught up in these kind of ridiculous games where we've like lost sight of what we wanted in the first place. Because the problem with having powerful models is they, they can become larger than life and we can become fixated on them, which impedes our own growth and development, you know, and there are mm -hmm. certain models we need to let go. Um, yeah. You know, there are certain rivals that we need to just kind of like forget about and we'd be much happier, but that's a process that doesn't come natural to us, right? We don't want to let go of those things because in some sense, our identity um, has been formed through them. Like we, our mm -hmm. identity is that we're anti this or anti that. And think about how kind of weird that is or how unhealthy that can be if the core of our identity is being not what another person is. And, yeah, and this is, I think, what we see today in, in America. Um, you know, I, I hear more about like what we're against than, than what anybody is for. And I think that's incredibly unhealthy. And this mm -hmm. is one of the core parts of the book is that that is a function of mimetic rivalry. That other person that you're against or anti 
is actually in some ways a powerful model of desire for you. Like you care what they want and you probably can't want the same thing as them. Or if you do want the same thing as them, you have to get more of it or something like that. And we're all kind of caught up in this. And I think the only way to heal or to move forward is to be a little anti-mimetic in some ways. And it's to kind of resist that temptation to simply react uh, and to, to regain the self-possession and the freedom to respond, not in kind, but in a more generous way, um, you know, to, 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 to be able to move out and, and forge our own path and not accept the narratives that have been given to us by whoever, by our family, by our society, by the news, because these narratives are, are only forming more division and more mimetic tribalism, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, it, it brought up something for me. I had a listener once who emailed me. He said, sorry to tell you this. He's like, I love your show, but the people who you have are making me feel far worse about my own life. So I'm unsubscribing. And I didn't get offended at all. I said, I can relate <laughs> you know, um, because these are all outliers. But so, so that raises another question. You know, when you look at mimetic desire, I mean, I feel like self-improvement is rampant with mimetic desire. Uh, you know, everybody from Tony Robbins on down seems to be doing this. So how do you deal with that? Because we also did a series on cults, which, you know, kind of goes back into sort of mimicry and mimetic desire. Um, people often end up in cults because they're trying to improve some aspect of the, their life. And then instead of improving some aspect of their life, the cult itself becomes their life. Like I went through this. I know you alluded to pickup artists. I went through the seduction community um, only to realize I'm like, wait a minute, this whole thing is my life, but I'm not actually any better off than I was before. Hmm. Yeah. So the self-improvement community, I think, is is rampant with unrecognized mimesis, you know, and in fact, it kind of often runs off of mimetic desire. Um, there's a whole section in the book about goal setting, right? Like, well, mm -hmm. why, yeah. why, right? Like, how often do we question why we've chosen certain goals in the first place? I mean, there's a lot of books written and a lot of money made by people that will try to help you achieve all of your goals. But uh, not a lot of people talking about why we choose those goals in the first place. And, <laughs> and, and whether those goals are actually just like helping other people sell books and, you know, whatever. So, you know, it's a discussion that we're not having because this is almost too, it's almost, um, unco it's uncomfortable, right? It's, it's almost like a, a layer deeper than what I, I think people are, are talking about. Um, so for me, self-improvement is, I mean, obviously we all want to develop and improve. I don't really like the term though. Um, and I, I, you know, I found that the less I focus on my self-improvement and the more I focus on, you know, helping other people, like oddly, you know, my life is better. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's kind of a, a, you know, we're, we're other regarding creatures, we're social creatures. And for me, like the paradox of, of self-improvement is like the more I, the less I'm concerned about myself, um, the more I'm concerned about, you know, the people I love, um, the, the, the better, the better it goes. And usually I like indirectly end up, uh, reaching those goals that I, you know, I would have taken a more direct route towards, you know, had I not taken that stance. So, yeah, yeah I just think it's something to be aware of. Absolutely. Well, I think that 
you know, that's a, a perfect segue to talking about these two distinctions that you make between what you call Celebristan and uh, Freshministan. So uh, first, can you explain what those are? But the reason I wanted to talk about that is you said that people exaggerate the qualities of their models constantly, whether the models are in Freshministan or Celebristan. And I, I think the one, you know, I want to make sure that our listeners have a background on what those two things are. But I realized how easy it is to exaggerate the qualities of people on the internet simply based on potentially manufactured perception. Right. So there are two kinds of models, primarily. The first kind of a model is outside of our world. They're the kind of people that we don't have any social contact with. Uh, we'll never come into conflict or rivalry with them, either because they're dead. Uh, we're just separated by them, by from them by some social gap or existential gap. Maybe they live on the other side of the world and we don't even know they exist. So these people are what Girard calls external models of desire, external to our world. That's why they're called external models of desire. And I coined the term in the book, Celebristan, to describe them. They live in this world called Celebristan. They're like celebrities. You know, we don't, uh, we don't really view them as like threats necessarily to our own sense of self. Um, at like the way that like somebody who's very close to us would. So that, and that's the second kind of model. So the second kind of model called an internal model of desire or internal mediator of desire to be technical. And they're the people that, you know, exist in our world. They're the people that we can come into contact with, that we can compete with that we can become rivals to. And I call this world Freshmanistan because the best image that I could come up with for it is like the way that it's like to be a freshman in high school or in college, where you know you have all these things in common, you can come into contact with anybody else. And we project all kinds of things um, onto these people. We do it in Celebristan too, right? Like we probably, you know, assume that these, you know, crypto, new crypto millionaires and the billionaires are way happier than they probably are, right? They, they have a curated persona. Um, we don't know anything about their lives, but we project all kinds of things onto them. It's even worse, though, in Freshmanistan, um, because we, we, these people are in our worlds, um, and, and there's something Freud calls the narcissism of small differences, right? That, that is very unique to this world where we notice like the smallest differences in anything because we're so close in proximity, right? So it's like more important, apparent to us, like we're paying more attention to it. So, <clears throat> you know, if Jeff Bezos makes an extra hundred million dollars or something over the next year, I might not even know that. Um, but if like my colleague that has this works in my office or is in the same line of work as me, gets a $5,000 raise and I don't, then that is a massive deal to me. So the, it's interesting how things take on greater or less importance based on proximity, not of distance, not of geographic proximity, but uh, in terms of how similar we think we are to another person. We start to notice mm -hmm. these small things. And we, we project a lot onto other people that is probably not real in any way. And this is, you know, we're talking about the seduction community earlier that we've both had some contact with. Part of the game that people in that community play, because it works, frankly, and, you know, the ethical issues aside, um, 
don't have time to get into that, but people that project a high degree of confidence, for instance, um, you know, a colleague or, you know, a member of the opposite sex or whatever, are they're they're incredibly attractive because in in the world of desire, in the world of mimetic desire, they make powerful models because we don't know what to want. And when somebody else presents themselves as knowing what to want with some high degree of confidence, we start to think, huh, like what do they know that I don't know? You know, like they seem to have their desires figured out. And this, by the way, happens unconsciously. Um, we don't actually usually have this dialogue in our heads. It doesn't sound like this. But we we follow them or we pay attention to them. We imitate them because they seem like they they know what they want, whether they do or not, right? I mean, people can project confidence and be deeply insecure inside. And mm-hmm. we we can really, there's a lot of distortions that take place in this world that I call fresh manistan, like in high school. You know, like everybody in high school is assuming that the other people have things f- figured out um, a lot to, to a much greater degree than they do. And then I, you know, this, this continues, I think, through life. So there's kind of a game, right? Like a kind of, you know, live, live action role playing in, in a way where everybody is trying to project a certain amount of confidence and, you know, nobody quite knows, you know, who's telling the truth or not. And this is what I, you know, I talk about in the book that, you know, social media has contributed to this because, you know, people, people present a curated version of themselves on social media. They make these statements and think about how much we actually have to go on. We don't know anything about these, especially like anonymous profiles. We don't know anything about this person other than the avatar and the things that they tweet. And mm-hmm. we can find ourselves uh, conjuring up a whole image of their lifestyle and like how much money they have and, and all kinds of things. And probably none of it is actually true. Yeah. You know, it's funny you, you mentioned desire in the seduction community because I remember you know, at the beginning of it, I think almost all of us went there because we were just looking for a relationship. We had struggled to meet women. We're like, oh, I want a girlfriend. And you're taught that that is the source of all of your problems, that that's not what you should want. You should want to sleep with as many women as possible. And that's where everything goes off the rails. Right. It's kind of a little, yeah, it's like a, a pivot. You, you go in just wanting to be in a relationship, a fulfilling relationship. And, uh, and, and you're told that, uh, you know, in fact, um, the relationship's not going to fulfill you. What will is just being yeah. with a lot of women, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was never in the seduction community. I just read the book, um, Rick Strauss's mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And, uh, and I happened to know a couple of people that were. And, uh, you know, I didn't know about mimetic desire at the time, but it's it, one, of the, one of the interesting things that I noticed and thinking back on it now is that a lot of the principles in, in my book um, can be used in positive ways or in manipulative and negative and destructive ways. Let's just be clear about that, right? Like there are things in the book, if you know them, you can use them for good, you can use them for for ill. And I I noticed that a lot of people in that community almost like had a tacit understanding or intuited the way that mimetic desire works because they're like baked into a lot of the tactics that those pickup artists used. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I think it's fascinating that you brought up social media because I saw over and over how many times you referenced it throughout the book. Because I mean, social media really is a, a breeding ground for mimetic desire. So, how do people, you know, learn from models of desire whose content they consume on social media 
without letting it go so far off the rails that those people basically are influencing every single choice and action and determining their values and distorting their values more importantly. I think it just has to do with boundaries. You know, it has to do with yeah. perspective. And and that's hard because the social media companies aren't going to do that for you. That's not in their best interest to create any kind of boundaries. You know, we have to somehow find a way to, to, to separate, uh, I don't, I don't want to get too philosophical here. Um, and use, so we, we have to separate the, the content from the, kind of um, almost uh, metaphysical like trance that that certain people or communities can can put on us uh, where they take on sort of like we, we invest them with uh, with with far more importance than we should so there's a matter of like filtering things out you know like picking out what's good um, being able to spot bullshit when we see it and just consuming in in a really intentional way I mean I don't have that quite figured out yet. I don't know if there's any technology that will be built that will do the job for us. I just mm-hmm. don't know if there's really any any answer other than, you know, I, and I referenced David Foster Wallace in the book who was concerned about this 20 years ago, like other than developing some serious machinery in our guts and awareness of what this stuff is doing to us um, that will help us to take the benefits from it because I learn stuff on social media all the time uh, and I hear interesting things. I see things uh, without um, can, without necessarily having to ingest the poison along with the, with the good stuff. And mm-hmm. that's really hard to do. And, you know, if you figure that out, I'd love to come back on so you can tell me all about it because I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't have figured out yet. Well, I, I, I wish I could say I have, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a Cal Newport fan, so I try to limit, you know, my use of social media. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. That's one of those things. I think that's been a challenge for me, even as somebody who hosts the show, because what do I do? I talk to people like you all day long. And it took me a long time to stop benchmarking against my guests. Hmm. Yeah, I think we all, I think we all have felt that in our, in our own ways, right? In our own domains of life, whatever, whatever we're most deeply in and whatever we spend mm-hmm. a lot of time in, um, whatever world we're in, those people are our benchmarks. And, mm-hmm. um, it's funny how, you know, like when you move away from an industry or you move away from a job or you're off of social media for a little while or whatever, isn't it funny? Like how you, you look back on, on, things or people or whatever it is and and it's like it no longer has quite as of a, of a hold on you because you have perspective it's kind of like looking back in your life five years ago and like wow i really was like so into that um yeah. you know it's 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 eye-opening but i think like constantly baking in practices into my life that help me get perspective like i, I try to take at least a week every year and go on a retreat uh if I, th- those are the things that kind of, where I kind of like redraw my game plan. I learn a little bit more about myself. I learn a little bit more about the kind of relationship I want to have to social media in this coming year. I've been on more than ever because of the book, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm going to reevaluate that probably when I do that retreat later this year. Uh, and yeah. I think what, whatever that is for, for you or for the listeners, I would say, you know, it's, it might look very different for you than it does for me, but I, I mean, whatever you need to do to, to get that space, I think that's critical. Yeah. 
Well, um, I think that that makes a perfect uh, segue to where I want to wrap up. And that is with this idea of fulfillment stories, because I feel like there's so much in your book that it would take us four hours to actually go as deep as we want to. Uh, But the fulfillment story really struck me because I think it was a really interesting distinction between something that is fulfilling and something that's pleasurable. And I feel like too often we tend to confuse the two. So can you talk about the three essential elements of a fulfillment story and how people apply that to their lives? So a fulfillment story is a story about a time in your life when you did something, you took some action, so it can't be passive, right? Um, You acted to accomplish something or, or take on some project and it brought you a deep sense of satisfaction and fulfillment after you accomplished whatever that thing is. And it was enduring. So it lasted uh, to the point where, you know, your fulfillment would be, uh, I don't know, a football game in high school. And it still brings you joy to think about it today. And that satisfaction was enduring. It lasted. Uh, and I, have encouraged readers because this is something I've been doing for 10 years when I was introduced to this exercise. I went back through my life and I found, you know, a dozen of these fulfillment stories. And it took me a while to even remember some of them, right? Shocking. Like I had forgotten some things that happened to me early in my life that were deeply important to me. And isn't it strange that something that was deeply important to me was like covered up through the noise and the mimetic noise that I hear? in my daily life, but I recovered them. And it was almost like recovering a part of myself. And as I thought about these fulfillment stories, and I began to think like, well, so what was it in particular that seems to be so satisfying to you, Luke, about achieving these particular kinds of things? And by the way, they don't have to be impressive to anybody else, right? Um, The first time I did this, like my most successful company wasn't even on my list. You know, it was literally a fifth grade science project, a a couple of games that I had when I was an athlete, you know, things like that. And I tried to put my finger on what it was that was really driving me and what it was that was so fulfilling to me. And I began to see some patterns. And I promise anybody that does this, you know, you'll begin to see some patterns in your life too. And the reason that's important, you know, I think, uh, you know, having read a little bit of your book, right? I mean, I I would imagine surfing would be probably one of those things, right? And uh you know, the patterns begin to emerge and it's an indication. It's almost like a fingerprint begins to form, like a fingerprint of your identity of your, what I call in the book, thick desires, as opposed to thin desires. And thin desires, highly mimetic, change in a dime. Thick desires seem to be the ones like built up like like layers of rock in Zion National Park or something, right? Where they're just solid. And even though they can get covered up by leaves and snow that blow away, there's just something like enduring there. And, you know, all of us should really take the time to try to figure out what those desires are. Mm. Wow. wow. Um, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this. Well, hey, we'll have to do it again sometime, maybe. This is <laughs> we great. definitely will have to do it again. <laughs> uh, well, I have one last question for you, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or some something unmistakable? I think that it is discovering who they truly are in the sense of Michelangelo's sense of, of removing all the extraneous stuff. Um, 
and there there is a sort of a unique identity. I'm I'm you know what they call in philosophy an essentialist. You know, I think that you know people do have an essential kind of created design, and part of life is about figuring out uh, what that is. And the people that are able to do the best job excavating, the best job removing all of the fluff, all of the non-essential things, um, are the ones that discover that sort of unmistakable, unrepeatable core, and they use it to to make beautiful things and to leave a fingerprint on the world uh, when 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 they leave this world um, that only they could leave. And, and that's pretty awesome. You know, I, I truly believe that everybody has something that they, uh, are meant to do that only they can do. And if they don't do it, it's, it's lost to the world forever, which is a tremendous responsibility, but also pretty awesome to think that, you know, we all have a, a really important mission. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, the book, your work and everything that you're up to? I, I so enjoyed this conversation. Um, thanks so much for having me on. They can read more at LukeBurgess.com. I publish a Substack uh, at least once a week. Uh, a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book. Uh, and, uh, you can find me, uh, on social media too. (laughs) (laughs) Ironic. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.